What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we're going to continue our series on the Masters, looking at people who have transformed how we think about the Christian faith. Each week we focus on a different master, and last week we looked at Augustine, a man who wrestled with following God's will, and finally, in a moment, had his life transformed by a child singing to pick it up, read it. He read a few verses from Romans and was never the same and dedicated his entire life to God after that. Our main takeaway was the importance of confessing our sin. We also saw how looking back on our lives, we can uh, can help us to see the different pieces of our life and how those things fit together in a way that brings another kind of confession, confessing our praise to God. That's just one of the many things Augustine teaches us, but today we are moving on to a new topic and a new person. We are going to look at someone who many of you would have heard about in school He is the reason many of our churches exist today, and though Methodists don't trace our history through him, we are profoundly impacted by his life. Now we look to Martin Luther, the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. I have to admit, I almost skipped over Luther. His protest sparked a war between Catholics and this new group of Protestants that led to the death of over five million people but that's getting a little ahead in the story his impact though is unmistakable and there is much we could learn from him so let's dive in we're going to hear from Laura she's going to share with us from Romans chapter 1 this is the same book that inspired Augustine so clearly it is speaking across generations to people the apostle Paul wrote it to a group of about 50,000 people living in Rome who had converted to Christianity Initially, Roman Christians were all non-Jewish because Jews had been unfairly expelled from Rome. By this time that Paul was writing, though, this unfair law was repealed and Jewish Christians were now living alongside non-Jewish Christians. The two sides had very different ideas about how Christianity was supposed to look. So Paul is writing about how these groups can come together. Today we might call this racial reconciliation or cross-cultural sensitivity, but the apostle, he starts his letter by reminding them what the core of the Christian faith is. This is Romans 1, 14 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And from John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, but to all who received him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in us a faith that is unshakable. Draw us to your will, not through works, but through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther was the oldest child in his family. His father wanted him to become a lawyer, but while in graduate school, he was returning from a visit home and was caught in a terrible storm. The legend goes that lightning struck so close to him that he was knocked to the ground by the force of it. As he feared for his life, he shouted out, I will become a monk! Because of this vow, he dropped out of law school and entered one of the monasteries of St. Augustine. His father was livid, thinking he was throwing his life away, and his friends thought this was unbelievable. Luther had always been a joyful, happy person, and joining a monastery was like a prison sentence. In fact, Luther describes it exactly as that. He said it was a season of deep spiritual despair. He said, Jesus was the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. He would fast, pray, and confess regularly, yet still felt guilty. He would punish himself for his doubt and for his sin, but still he felt like God was just waiting to crush him for the things he did wrong. He was a good student, though, and eventually he became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. It was from that post that he encountered something that didn't sit right with him. A friar by the name of Tetzel was going around Germany collecting money for the new Vatican, which is where the Catholic Pope lives. The building had been neglected for generations, and one pope had decided he wanted to rebuild the Vatican. There were two reasons he wanted to do this. One was that the pope wanted to rebuild it as a memorial to himself, he wanted his tomb in the building and the whole structure to be all about him. Uh, that's one reason. But the second, I didn't know this until I had traveled myself to France. I visited the city of Cluny, which had an enormous commune called the Abbey of Cluny. It had a basilica that was at the time the largest in the world. They taught clergymen and women who became some of the most influential leaders in Europe. In fact, its influence was so profound that those in the Roman Vatican became jealous. They wanted to train the world's best leaders. They wanted to have the biggest basilica in the world. But to do it, they had to get the money for it first. Their solution was novel. They started selling what were called indulgences. Someone could pay money, and the church told them it would reduce the amount of punishment a person got for their sin, People understood it to mean that they would spend less time in purgatory before entering heaven. Previously, an indulgence was given for saying a prayer or doing a good deed. Now, it was given for money to change a person's eternity. 
And that seemed rotten to Martin Luther. He had struggled himself with these feelings of guilt. He knew he couldn't just buy his way out. So why was the church selling this idea of releasing someone from their sins for money? As he studied the topic further, he realized that the church was making some other mistakes as well. He wrote to his bishop to describe how it was uh, that the church was in error. He included what today is known as the 95 Theses, statements questioning the actions of the church, and that was it. He had no intention of starting a revolution or upending the church, but over the next several years, as the church demanded to know where he got these ideas from, he was disturbed. He wasn't peddling someone else's ideas. He was giving his own scholarly opinion. So when Luther discovered that the Pope already knew about selling indulgences to help rebuild the Vatican, and that the Catholic Church rejected his opinions, declaring him an enemy of the Pope, he was out of options. The church excommunicated him, said it was illegal to shelter or to even clothe him, and that anyone could kill him without legal consequence. That's when his response to the church finally changed. Luther was no longer simply trying to help the church understand the ways in which she had erred. Luther was ready to change the world. Not by war, not with violence, but through the declaration of a singular doctrine that he understood to be the core of the Christian faith. His own wrestling with his sins over the years and his sense of perpetual guilt drove him to the scriptures. As he read and reread God's word, it was in Romans chapter 1 that he finally saw the light. We are not helplessly guilty. We are not forsaken by a holy but ruthless God. We are saved by faith alone. That's the conclusion he comes to while he's studying the scriptures, particularly Psalm 118. And when he goes back to Romans 1, it finally dawns on him. We are all guilty. None are righteous. And our only hope is in faith alone. See, Luther had been taught to read this chapter in a very particular way. When he read that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, he was taught that this faith was what came from the righteousness of God. That's verse 17 in Romans 1. The righteousness of God was understood philosophically as punishment from God induced by our sin. So for God to be holy and righteous... He was constantly being forced to punish us for our sins. This is why when you invite some people to church, they tell you they can't come because if they do, the church will get struck by lightning and the the building will collapse in on them. They think God must punish us for our sins, but Apparently, that can only happen when you're inside the church building, but whatever. Uh, Luther suddenly realized that the righteousness of God doesn't require him to punish us. It requires that all those who have faith, who put their trust in God, must be saved. No one is righteous. 
But that doesn't mean we are all condemned. It means we are all equal when it comes to our access to salvation. The one thing God requires of us to save us from our sins is to have faith. That's it. There is nothing else. Confession is good, but it doesn't save us. Right beliefs or better theology, it's good, but it doesn't save us. Giving money to the church, it's nice, but it doesn't save us. The one thing we need is faith. Now this is important. What is faith? Some people today will tell you faith is believing hard enough in something even if you can't see it. They'll try and get you to buy a hanky that's been blessed with holy oil or get God's favor by buying them a new jet so they can travel in style when they preach. That's not faith. That's indulgences all over again. You cannot buy your way into faith. Luther reminds us that faith is one thing and one thing only. It is a gift from God. The only, only thing we have to do in order to have faith is to receive it. That's it. We simply say yes to God's offer. Now, what had Luther over a barrel was that he thought after he had this faith, he had to live the right way. And if he didn't, he would be guilty all over again. God's wrath would come after him for his sin even more so now that he was a Christian. He knew better than to sin. So to sin after salvation was even worse, right? Besides, anything we did to attract God's favor was, by definition, sin. Trying to win God over with holy actions, that is sin. Seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But the good news is that faith is not righteous living after committing oneself to God. Faith is trusting God even in your failure, even in your sin. God doesn't expect you to be perfect as though you can earn your place in heaven. That's literally impossible. The only way is to say yes to God, to trust that God has you even when it's all going wrong. As Luther realized this marvelous truth, he certainly needed that kind of faith. Uh, his correction of the church sparked an unintentional war as emperors and princes sought an opportunity to grow their power and overthrow the Catholic Church. They used this theological dispute as a reason to kill people. Luther totally disagreed. When his hometown was in revolt, he returned there to preach on the core values of Christianity, which he saw as love, patience, and freedom. But we don't get to living out these values through violence. We get there by trusting God's word. Within just a couple of weeks, his preaching and presence had ended the uprising in his hometown. His hope was that the same would happen in other areas too. He continued to minister, leading a, a new church to be born, the Lutheran Church. He translated the Bible from Latin, which very few people spoke, into German, which everyone around him spoke. He challenged sacerdotalism, which is one of my favorite words to say. Uh, he said, if you don't you don't have to have a priest to forgive you. You yourself have direct access to God. So you can go straight to the Lord with your concerns and you can be made right with God 
no priest necessary. You don't need a clergy person to get right with God. And his hymns continued to be a blessing to the whole world. Those are some of the incredible things that happened in Luther's life, but what can we take from it? What does it mean for us that he struggled with his own salvation and learned to trust God with faith alone? I hope that one significant thing we take away is that we can't save ourselves, that our sin condemns us and that no one is worthy of getting out of the mess in which we all find ourselves in. No one can get out of it. Everyone is guilty. Now, the thing that stops us from being overcome with doubt and depression, like Martin Luther was in his early years, is that we know where our hope comes from. We know that God doesn't just leave us stuck in our sin. God made a way for everyone, every single person on the planet, to be clean from sin and made right with God. This is the tricky part, though. We aren't made right by our actions. We don't get right by living a holy and righteous life. That's the same dead end Luther was stuck in. The only way forward with God is through faith. When you trust God, no matter your sin, your sorrow, or your sickness, you are saved. I heard this story this week that seems pretty unbelievable to me. It's about a man from California named Noriyuki. When he was just two years old, he developed spinal tuberculosis and spent the next 11 years in the hospital. Most of his time there, he was wrapped in a full body cast and was told he would never walk again. He befriended a priest at the hospital who joked with him that if he converted to Catholicism, he would rename him Patrick Aloysius Ignatius Xavier Noriyuki Morita. Well, after 11 years, this little boy had extensive surgeries and somehow was able to walk. Years later, he would leave his work as a department head with the aerospace firm Lockheed Martin so he could go to L.A. and do stand-up comedy. He took on the stage name Pat, honoring that priest who helped him all those years in the hospital. Eventually, Pat took on a role he became famous for as... Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid. He was also the emperor in Mulan for the younger crowd. But the point is, he didn't give up despite 11 years in the hospital. That priest taught him, God is always with you. You can trust God, not because everything is going right, but because there is a brighter day tomorrow with God. It's not about how things look around you. It's not about what went wrong or who hurt you or how little money you have. Faith is a gift from God that says if you trust him and not any of the stuff around you, not any of the things you see with your eyes, just trust God, then you are made right with God. It's so simple, but we get roped into this idea that we can earn our salvation, that somehow our good works is the thing that saves us. No, never. You can never do enough good work to earn God's act of saving you. You just get it. If you don't, if you, as long as you put your trust in God, you get it. Eventually, this idea led Luther to break away from the Catholic Church and to Uh, his own excommunication, but he wasn't afraid. He knew that he had rediscovered the very core of the Christian faith. 
1999, there was actually a document signed by Lutherans, Methodists, and Catholics called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. It declares what Luther so boldly stood for despite the real possibility of death. Here it is. Together we confess, by grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our own part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Faith alone. There's more that happens after faith, but it is faith alone that saves us. Let me share one more story. Steve Hayner was a seminary president diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. After he found out the chemotherapy wasn't working, he wrote, What now seems clear from a purely physical perspective is that in all probability the remainder of my life on this earth is now to be counted in weeks and months. He then addressed the many people who have been praying for a miracle. Many are praying for one of God's big miracles. We are as well. But it is not how God answers prayer that determines our response to God. God is committed to my ultimate healing. But being cured of my cancer may or may not be a part of that healing work. One person told me how disturbing it is to her to watch so many thousands of prayers on my behalf and yet to see a minimal of physical evidence of healing. Does God really heal? Does the amount of prayer have any special impact? Honestly, while I understand the importance and logic of such questions, most of these questions are not ones that are important to me. I truly don't know what God has planned. I could receive healing through whatever means, or I could continue to deteriorate, but life is about a lot more than physical health. It is measured by a lot more than medical tests and vital signs. More important than the more particular aspects of God's work with us is God's overall presence with us. Nourishing, equipping, transforming, empowering and sustaining us for whatever might be God's call to my life today. Today, my call might be to learn something new about rest. Today, my call might be to encourage another person in some very tangible way. Today, my call might be to learn something new about patience, endurance, and the identification with those who suffer. Today, my call might be to mull through a new insight about God's truth or character. He closed by quoting the poet E.E. E. Cummings, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. And I'd like to close with the words to this poem as a reminder that faith is not an action we take. It is a state of being. Trust God, and you are right with God. Be with God, and you are assured of righteousness, not by doing, not by earning or buying, but simply by faith. It doesn't get you everything you want, but it opens you to a larger world, a world where God has you in the palm of his hands. Here's the poem. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, 
which is yes. I who have died am alive again today. And this is the son's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of loves and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. May your ears and eyes be opened today by faith alone, a gift from God. Amen. Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.